Bible reading is from Genesis chapter 32 from verse 22 to the end. Jacob wrestles with God. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Good morning, everyone. Good. Um, it's a bit of been a bit of the uh, Joel tag team this morning, um, and so in good fashion. Um, so, um, if you had more prayer requests or you were a bit shy to say it in front of the whole group, um, there's books down the aisle if you just want to pass them through. If you want any more info on the church, you can fill that in there as well. And um, Yeah, it's great to be able to lead us this morning as we explore God's Word together. Um, If you've been with us or if you haven't been with us, we've been looking through um, Genesis. We've been looking at some of the key characters and their stories and looking at um, this theme of faithful to the promise, looking at how God is faithful to His people um, even when they're not, even when they mess up, even when they go the opposite way. God is still faithful to His promise to come through for them. And um, last week, Glenn looked at, we've been looking at this, started um, the story of Jacob, and we sort of picked out the two sort of key stories in his sort of roller coaster life. So Glenn looked at um, the first dream that he has, where um, he sees the ladder coming down from heaven to earth. He sort of wakes up and goes, how awesome is this place? Like, surely God was here, and I, I didn't know it. And it's this really amazing experience of wonder and awe, which then leads him as he goes to an unknown territory, essentially. He goes to his uncle's house, um, no one he knows there, and he's all on his own. And then we're looking at this morning at the wrestle of God. So sort of like he's coming back home now, and he then has this experience of, of wrestling God. And, and the thing is, he does it all in the face of fear. 
And we're going we're gonna to work through all of chapter 32, like, not like all of it, don't worry, it won't take that long. But, you know, we're going to work through it and get the full picture because the Bible really, is really just explains his fear going in, the uncertainty and how God's promise, it's a bit clouded. It doesn't, you can't quite see it. So how do we stay believing in it even when we can't see it? So I was thinking, when's the last time you've been really fearful? Like, when's the last time you've been, like, actually scared out of your boots? Can you think of it? For me, I remember a few, few months ago, we were, um, we were in Uganda, and leading the school's rev trip there. And to sort of cut a long story short, basically it was our last day there, and all of a sudden, outside the front gate, like, so we couldn't see this, but we could just hear it. All you hear is these drums, this screaming, this yelling, like, doom, 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 doom. it's like this tribal beats, all this shouting, and walk outside, and there's like 30 people, just a mob of 30 people right outside our front gate. And um, Dad wasn't here at the time. He was in a meeting uh, up at the Village of Hope, along with all the Hope Builder staff. So it was literally us, four leaders, and a bunch of 18-year-olds in the house, and that was it. And I'll, I'll, I'll explain to you what I saw as soon as I walk out the gate. I duck under the gate, I open it up, I look out, and I firstly... Firstly, there's three boys, about 15, like this far away from me. And they've got a big cultural headdress on. They've got like the tribal skirt thing going on, tops off. The ones on either side had spears. The one in the middle had two machetes. And then, and like, and I recognized two of them. They're boys that used to be in the Village of Hope, but have since been resettled with their families. And and so I'm like, what are they doing here with machetes and spears, you know? And... The thing is that I'll never forget is their face. Their face was just stone cold, like expressionless, like pure intensity. Like their eyes were just full on. I was like, what's going on here? Next thing I see is this old lady standing just behind them. She's the only one speaking. She's yelling all this stuff in Luganda. I've got no idea what she's saying. Her eyes are like all red and stuff. And, um, and she, like her laugh, she just kept laughing and it was like borderline evil. Um, and then the next thing I see, I look over to the left, uh, and sort of on the edge of the whole mob, it's this tall guy, and he's off of the ferries. He's looking up at the sky and stuff. His eyes are a bit crooked. And, um, and he's got this big staff. He's got this big, like, wooden pole with, like, a claw on the end. It was, like, taller than him. And I'm just, like, in a matter of seconds, I've just gone, oh, my gosh, this is, like, some witchcraft, witch doctor thing, um, I was freaking out. I'm like, students, get inside. All of a sudden, it's me and four leaders are just standing in front of this mob of like 30 people. And I've never prayed so many prayers in my life. I was like, blood of Jesus, protect us. Like every prayer that I've heard from like spiritual warfare, I'm just rattling it off. I'm like, what is happening? And then finally, like the, the drums stop. It's like, doom, 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 doom. And then one, the one of the boys speaks. He's like, Uncle Johan. And I'm like, he's not here. He's at the village. And then, like, all of a sudden, he gets his machetes, he raises them in the air, faces the road, and he goes, doom. And then all of a sudden, doom, 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 And the whole mob just moves up the road. And I'm just like, oh, no, I've just sent my dad to his death. Like, <laughs> I, like I'm absolutely, I'm freaking out. You have no idea. Luckily, or thankfully, miraculously, God sends an angel in the form of one of the Hope Builders' builders. He's walking down the road just at this time. He's got his camera and all of a sudden, he stops and takes all these photos. He's laughing. He's coming over. 
And so I'm like, all right, so it must be all right. This is when I'm starting to calm down a bit because I'm like, I've seen him and he's laughing and stuff. So I did the African, come here. This is come here in Uganda. So I'm like, Charles, Charles, come here. And so he comes over and he's got this big smile on. I'm like, what's that all about? And he's like almost laughing. He's like, they're getting circumcised. <laughs> I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> like, so basically this tribe, they go around... Like, so they're getting circumcised in like a week or something. And these boys are like 15, 16. And they go around the community collecting money and almost like they psych themselves up almost. Like they're so intense. They're sort of almost like in this trance. Like they're so intense because throughout the procession, you know, when they get the, you know, when that happens, they're not allowed to show any fear. They have to stand there, arms out. They're not allowed to let their arms drop. They're not allowed to show any emotion, no weakness, no fear. So they go around the whole week sort of psyching themselves up for the big day. And I'm just like, all right, that makes sense. <laughs> like, here I am freaking out, trying not to show anything, you know, trying to be the big, strong leader. Um, but then, re- in reality, they're the ones freaking out, you know. And I just thought, it was so funny, like, how even this little tribe in Uganda, you know, it's one of, like, 50, they've created this culture where you don't show fear, you don't show weakness. And I feel like that's the exact same that we have here. Like, we just create this culture where showing fear, showing weakness is sort of just unheard of. Like, why would you do that? You know, we need to sort of pretend we're all big and strong and life is all good. Yet, what I see more and more is that actually in the place of fear and weakness is where God meets us and where God transforms us And that's exactly what we see in the life of Jacob this morning. So, to give you a bit of context, all right, to this Jacob story. Um, You all probably know the story of when he robbed, you know, he stole the birthright and the blessing from his brother Esau. What they probably don't tell you in Sunday school is Esau's reaction. All right, so in, in chapter 26, verse 36, it says this. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? Jacob meant heel grabber or deceiver or schemer. So Esau says, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he's cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright and behold, he has taken away my blessing. And then a few verses later, it says, now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing which he had been given. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. All right, so it's not just like a little... He's just stolen like a, a place tag or something. Like it's so serious was what Jacob did to Esau that Esau wants to kill him, all right? Now, what happens is uh, the mother finds out because mothers know all things. And um, Jacob is the mummy's boy, all right? Jacob's the mummy's boy. Esau's the hunter. He's, you know, daddy's boy. Jacob's mummy's boy. And so she comes to Jacob and says, you got to leave. you got to run away. Your brother wants to kill you, so... Go to your uncle's place, um, stay there a while, and while you're there, find yourself a wife. So marry one of your cousins. So terrible, terrible advice, um, parents. Never tell your children to run away. Uh, Reconciliation is probably a better option, and don't pursue incest relationships. That's probably a good idea too. But the story just gets weirder and weirder, because then he goes to Laban, he falls in love with Rachel, and has to work seven years to pay her off and all this stuff, and then ends up sleeping with Leah, because the irony is that Jacob, the deceiver, uh, it literally says Jacob got Jacobed, you know, that he got 
deceived by Laban. And so he has this whole experience, has all these children. And then chapter 31, verse 3, um, it's time to go home. And God says to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I'll be with you. So that's the promise. The promise that God gives Jacob is, I'll be with you. Because the reality is, he's not just saying to Jacob, go home. He's not just saying, just take the journey home and resettle back there. He's actually saying, go and face your brother who wants to kill you. It's been 20 years. As far as Jacob knows, that's still the picture, that his brother wants to kill him and hates him. And God is saying, go home, and the promise is, I will be with you. And I just thought, like, when God calls, like, when God calls Jacob to go home, and I just thought, when God calls us to do something, very rarely is it an easy step. You know, and I'm not just talking about sort of, you know, the big thing. You know, so often we sort of just straight away, when God calls us, like, we think of the big things, like, you know, planning a church or becoming a missionary or, you know, sharing the gospel with our neighbors or inviting someone to church, you know, all these things, they're, they seem, but even just like the everyday things of, you know, will I, will I take this step to co- have a conversation with someone or will I just show love to this person that I don't really like? You know, all these things, even God's commands, they're not easy. Like, think of what Jesus commands us to do. Loving your enemies, storing up treasures in heaven, not earth, loving one another like, like Jesus had loved us, you know, fully, sacrificially, to be his witnesses in all the world. Like, it's not easy it's often scary. You know, it's, I was thinking, like, it's not just a step of faith. We often talk about it's a step of faith. But I think another way, like, it's also a step through fear. It's a step, you know, through a risk. It's not just a step of faith, but it actually encompasses fear and risk. You know, John Calvin said that those who think faith is exempt from fear have had no real experience of living by faith. That those who think that faith is exempt from fear have no real experience of living by faith. That this whole idea of living by faith, of, of stepping and following Jesus, is actually encompasses fear and encompasses hardship and struggle and uncertainty. But there's always a promise. There's always a promise to that, that God says, I will be with you. All throughout the Bible, you know, Deuteronomy, it says, is the God who goes before you. He will be with you. He will never leave you. He will not forsake you. It says it to Joshua, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And even, you know, last year we focused on the Great Commission, you know, and we sort of talked about, you know, making disciples, you know, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them. But we sort of sometimes we forget to tag along the end bit, and where Jesus says, and behold, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Like, that's the promise of God, that that we need to constantly be, re- be reminding ourselves of, is that God is with us. That, that's why we come here. That's why we continually remind ourselves. You know, I was thinking like, God, I was thinking like a boxing ring. Like God's not just in the crowd. He's not even just in your corner. Like, so sometimes we treat God like that. Like he's waiting for the end of the round and then we'll go and see him at the end of the week. And, oh yeah, it's pretty tough, got a few bruises and he patches us up and he gives us an encouragement and off we go into the ring again. But no, actually God's like right in the ring with us. Like he's fighting the fight for us and we need to constantly like see that God is with us. He's not just waiting for us. He's not just there on the sideline, but he's actually 
right with us every step of the way in our struggle and in our hardship. And I think the beautiful thing of God is that He constantly reminds us of His promises. You look at, like I, I've been reading through Genesis, and like the story of Abraham is just amazing because God constantly reminds Abraham that, you know, okay, you've got no children, but I'm going to make you father of nations. And He shows, like, the pictures of the stars, the dust, the sand, like, they're all given at separate times. Like, God is constantly, all throughout the story, reminding Abraham of the promise He gives. And that's what happens with Jacob. Verse, in chapter 32, right at the start, Jacob gets a reminder of that God is with him. So God has said, go with him, and he's tried to leave Laban. He's sort of been all deceptive in the way that he's tried to leave. Um, Eventually, that gets sorted out. And then chapter 32, verse 1, it says, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. You know, Jacob Jacob's on the journey home and he sets up camp and he sees angels. Like he sees them and he goes, this is God's camp. Like he's reminded of God's presence. He's reminded that God is with him. But then just a few verses later, he sends off um, a messenger to go and meet Esau. It's sort of customary of the day to sort of see um, how the relationship is. And then he gets a reply in verse 6. It says, the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And Jacob's thinking, all right, cool. My brother's coming to meet me. It's been 20 years. Sounds promising. It says, he's coming to meet you and there are 400 men with him. Like you can just imagine, like just imagine 20 years, you've never seen your brother. The last you know is that he hates you and he wants to kill you. And then 20 years later, you find out I'm going to meet him, and he's coming with 400 men. Like, that's not a good sign. And so, Jacob's response in verse 7 is probably justified. He says, Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. But, you know, what I find fascinating is that just a few verses later for Jacob, he realized that there was angels at the camp. So he's just gone from seeing angels at his camp to all of a sudden hearing that his brother's come, and he's gone straight from like faith to fear in a matter of, who knows, hours, maybe a day. You know, he knows that the angels are there. He knows that God is with him. He knows that, you know, he said it, this is God's camp. But then so quickly, all he sees is his fear. All he sees is his, impe- his upcoming struggle. You know, I think, like, isn't that so true of us? Like, we come here on Sunday, we declare how God is with us, how He loves us, His grace, and, yep, you know, God is my victory. We declare it, we believe it, and then Monday comes, and all of a sudden, our fear takes over. You know, all of a sudden, I I feel like I've got to love this person, or I've got to talk to this person, or do this thing, and all of a sudden, it's like, instead of my faith taking over, my fear takes over. I don't know, maybe it's just me. But I feel like that's so often, that's what happens. And, and when that happens, our response, I think, for me, I'll, I think, so often is my response is like Jacob. And what does he do? He Jacobs. He schemes. He plans. He takes things into his own hands. 
you know, if you just follow the story through, what does he do? He throws up a prayer. He prepares a gift, you know, to sort of, uh, maybe my gift will sort of win him over. And it's completely excessive. He separates the camp. So he thinks, well, if my brother does come with 400 men, it's better that he gets half rather than all of them. So he separates his camp, separates his family, you know, half the children there, half the children there, one wife there, one wife there, and he separates it all and he says, better half than all, you know. I guess, you know, interesting thinking. But So he's got it all planned out. He's got, it all, he's got the whole scheme. He's figured it all out in his head. He's got everyone to know, you know, they all have their lines ready. He's told them what to say when Esau comes. I think he does it all to the point where he no longer trusts the promise, but he trusts his plan. Because that's why God shows up later. Because no longer is he trusting the promise that God will be with him. No longer is he trusting the fact that there's angels guarding that this is God's camp. All of a sudden now he's trusting in his promise. He's trusting that I've got it figured out and my schemes, my plans will get us through. How often do we do this? How often do we trust more in ourselves than in God and His promise? You know, we trust more in our thoughts and our plans to get us through uncertainty. We trust more in our bank accounts and our job security to get us, you know, to provide what we need. We trust more in our friends and family to support us when we're struggling. Not that these things are bad. You know, none of them are bad. But they should never take the place of God. They should never take the ultimate place of joy and peace and hope. You know, Christ alone, the cornerstone. Not like Jesus plus all these other things that I've got in my life, and that's my source of security. Like Christ alone. And the reality is, what happens when we Jacob? When we Jacob, when we, sc- when we scheme and when we plan when we place our trust in ourselves, ultimately we sin. It's actually sinful to do that. Because all of a sudden we place ourselves in the place of God. You know, S-I-N, this is a classic youth group analogy, but S-I-N, I is in the middle. That's what sin is. Sin is putting myself in the center of the universe and saying, I'm the most important, I'm going to do things my own way, and I'm going to do it how I want comes all about me and like you can just think about this on like a philosophical level like you think of um like pretty much every sin that you could think of in the end comes down to selfishness and independence people wanting to do something for themselves like you think of um theft theft is putting my needs above someone else's lying is putting my comfort my protecting my own image I lie to protect that because I feel like that's more important than someone's right to know the truth. You know, like that sin in and of itself is independence. It's selfishness. And, you know, like our world praises independence. If you are independent, that is a good thing. That's what our world says. But I think we need to be really be aware of that within the church because I think God has actually created us to depend on Him and to depend on each other. I think too often we go through life independent, not showing our weakness, not showing our fear, saying, I can get through this myself, when actually, no, God has created us to depend on Him and to depend on each other. 
And what happens for Jacob is his independence leads to isolation. Verse 24, it's like, it's his big night. Right before his fear, right before his brother's coming, it says, verse 24, and Jacob was left all alone. I feel like it's like one of the saddest verses in all the Bible. Like, here's a guy about like, it's 20 years since he's seen his brother. Like, if they made a reality TV show out of this, like, you can just, you can just imagine, like, the build-up to this day. And then it's the night before, you know. It's the big build-up, night before, and all of a sudden, he's left alone. Like, he's schemed and he's planned so much so that he's isolated, that he's been so independent that I've got this under control that he actually finds himself all alone. You know, and I think so quickly that's what happens in the church. That's what happens in our society, that people are lonely, like, more and more. And, you know, wouldn't it be awesome if the church was a place where loneliness was eradicated? Not because we're, like, great people, but because we realize that we're actually created to do life together and we're created to depend on God in that. You know, it's not, it's not like a good church growth strategy. It's not, you know, like a good way to sort of do things, but it's just purely authentic and true because we realize that you know as we all love so we love that that's what god has created us to do but like we sang this morning praise god that his grace is greater than our independence praise god that his grace you know reaches out to us in our isolation you know he doesn't wait for us to sort of come to him he doesn't wait for us to sort of get our act together and and make the you know come to us that actually God makes the first move that's grace that's exactly what happens in Jacob I don't know about you but in my Bible the title of the passage says Jacob wrestles with God almost suggesting that Jacob is the initiator suggesting that Jacob's like the hero of the story but when you read it you know Jacob's all alone and out of nowhere someone comes and wrestles him like, Jacob doesn't initiate anything. Jacob doesn't do anything. He's just all alone. They're probably, you know, trying to sleep, probably pacing the floor. Like, what do I do? All of a sudden, a man comes and wrestles him. And we later read that that, that was God. Because Jacob says, you know, I've seen God face to face and I've lived. So God actually comes and wrestles Jacob. And you can, you can imagine the fear of the moment. Like, you can imagine oh no, like my brother's snuck in. My brother's got past all my plans. He's crossed through, he's found me. He's going to kill me. But eventually Jacob realizes that there's, there's something more to the fight. There's something extraordinary going on here. And he says, you know, I'm not letting go. And he decides, I'm going to hold on. I'm going to hold on until you bless me. See, even when we're going our own way, even when we're making our own plans, even when we're scheming, God has a knack for coming in and for wrestling us and for getting control back in our lives and saying, you actually need me. That I am the source of your strength. That I am the one that you need. And you know, praise God that he does it. I don't know about you, but if, if I'm trying to find God, I don't think I do. You know, I don't find God unless he finds me. You know, I can't grab a hold of him unless he grabs a hold of me. That's, that's the very 
beliefs that we have. That's, that's exactly what the Bible pulls out, that actually God comes to us. And in that wrestle, there's a few things that happen. One of the first things I want to point out is that he gets a name change. He gets an identity change. It's a turning point. No longer would Jacob be known as the deceiver, the schemer, the heel grabber. Instead, he'll be known as Israel, which at the bottom of your Bibles, they might have a definition there which says, he strives with God, or God strives. And I just thought, that's the change of identity that I need. That's a change of identity that we need. That we wouldn't just scheme, we wouldn't plan, we wouldn't take things in our own plan in our own way, but instead that we would strive with God and that He would strive with us, that we would cling on to Him, that we would wrestle with Him. You know, in the darkest of nights, Jacob's fears, you know, the forefront of his mind, that's when God shows up, and that's when God reminds him again of the promise that I will be with you. Because in the end, God wants that relationship with us. He wants to walk the road with us, and so he constantly reminds us that he is with us. And he often does that through our struggle, through our weakness, in our fear, in our suffering. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul writes this. It is one of the most perplexing passages of Scripture, but 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, it says, So to keep me, Paul is writing, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul writes, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with my weakness, with my insults, with my hardships, with my persecutions, and with my calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know, Paul was writing that essentially we, we don't have it all together. And we never will. Even Paul, he feels like, you know, he's, he's getting a bit high up and so God gives him a thorn in his flesh. He never explains what it is, only that it was a messenger of Satan. That, that we'll never have it all together. That we'll always sort of struggle that we always have this thorn you know Jacob would forever walk with a limp to remind us that it's God's grace that is sufficient it is his power that gets us through not our own that we need him that his power is perfect in our weakness that's the reminder that God wants to give Jacob and that's the reminder that we need to hear that as we cling to God he's the one that is strong in our weakness And so, there's a great need for faith. Even in the face of our fear, our struggle, we need faith to believe that that is not the end. That our struggle is not the end. That our wrestle is not the end. In fact, it's just a new beginning. For Jacob, this wrestle, his whole life was different after this. 
He had a new name. He had a new limp. He had a new blessing. That as we cling to God in our struggle, in our hardship, we cling to Him, knowing that He will continue to transform us. See, Jacob walks away with a new name. He walks away with a new limp. A reminder of God's grace and God's power in his weakness. But he also walks away with a new blessing. He's been blessed once before by his father, and now he's been blessed by his heavenly father. Why does he get blessed? What does he do? He holds on. He holds on throughout the whole night. Like, I don't know about you, like if you've ever wrestled someone. Sometimes I try it. I remember probably about a year ago, I had a good wrestle with my brother. I don't bother trying anymore. Good thing he's not here because um, that would have been news to his ears. Um, but, you know, I don't try anymore because, like, it's it's pretty even fight. He's a bit taller than me. He's got a longer reach and he abuses it to all end. But it's it's tiring. Like, if you wrestle someone of, like, relative equal strength to you, it is tiring. Even if, like, you're weaker and they're strong, like, it is a tiring tiring thing so Jacob holds on in the struggle you know he could have let go it got to daybreak and the guy says let go and he goes no I'm holding on like he could have let go he could have ran away he could have you know he could have surrounded himself with 20 people to you know and in our struggle through life in our hardship in our suffering like as we wrestle with God like there are times when we can let go. There are times when we're tempted to throw in the towel, to sort of give up, to sort of say, oh, I can't do this anymore. You know, even when our hip gets put out of place, even when there's a thorn in our flesh, we need to continue holding on because He will bless us. He will come through. His power is perfect in our weakness and His grace is sufficient. So what I love about our story with Jacob, just as we wrap up, is that it's not just a struggle. It's not just this sort of suffering, hardship thing, but it's also a transformation thing. That in his struggle, God transforms him. A new name, a new limp, a new blessing. For us, even as our fears are imminent, even as our struggle, our uncertainty, right in our face, that as we cling on to God, he will transform us. You know, we used to live in Colorado and we used to go up to the mountains a bit. And uh, up on the mountains, there's not many trees. <laughs> but in the valley, there's a lot. You know, in the valley, there's much more growth than the mountaintop. And I see that throughout life. I see that in my life that actually the hard times is when God really grows us the most. Not that He can't do it on the mountaintop. But just more and more, I see God transforming us slowly but surely in hardship, in struggle, as we cling to Him. So my encouragement this morning for us is just to hold on to God, that we would be known as Israel and not Jacob, that we wouldn't go our own way, but instead we would strive with God, that we would hold on to God and say, I'm not letting go. Even when our fears cloud His promise, even when our fear overtakes our faith, even when it's not easy, when we're wrestling, when we're losing energy, when we're getting tired, 
that we would hold on. That we would hold on and cling to Him, knowing that He is the source of our strength, that His grace is sufficient, and that His power is made perfect in our weakness. And my prayer is this, is that we would be known, not as Jacob, but as Israel, in the truest sense of the word, that we'd be known as God's people who hold on to Him, but also the people that God holds on to. We strive, but God also strives. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, we just pray for us in whatever situations we're in. For us as a collective, for us as individuals, in our struggles, in our uncertainty, in our fear. God, in this road ahead, I pray that we would cling to you, that we would hold on, even when it's not easy. God, that we would hold on with faith, knowing that your grace is sufficient, that you are all that we need. And God, I pray that you'd continue just to remind us that each and every step that you are with us and that there's no one better to have by our side. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to respond by singing a song, Cornerstone. We sung it lots of times. 11 times last year, <laughs> to be exact. Um, but it's this song of just old truth. You know, I was looking at the guy that wrote it. He, scribbled, he was on his way to work. He scribbled down the notes, put them in his pocket, and left them there <laughs> for a few days. And then eventually he was a pastor. He, he came to someone who was on their deathbed. And um, she's like... He didn't know what to say. And so he pulled out from his pocket these lyrics. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. He had all four verses. And he read them out. And um, she told him, you need to put those to music. You need to finish the song. That they were beautiful words of hope and assurance for her, even on her deathbed. And so may they be for us as we sing them this morning, that they would be a reminder that God is a solid rock, that He is our cornerstone, the ones that we build our lives on, that though we are weak, He is strong, and He is Lord of all. Amen? Amen. So let's stand and sing.